But you can be seated where you are, and I encourage you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, today is the fifth Sunday. We have four of those a year. And whenever we have a fifth Sunday, we do what we call family worship, where we invite our children to come in. And so if you hear a little movement around of children, just know this is the Lord's house where they are welcomed here, okay? And as it occurs, we're going to be talking with the children here about the Antichrist and the great apostasy. So hopefully you grabbed one of the coloring sheets in the foyer because a lot of this is not going to be real interesting to them. But hopefully it will be to you as we are in week six of this series in the book of 2 Thessalonians. We've come to the very heart of the letter, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And it's this section that Paul wrote really in response to some issues that were happening in this small, fledgling church in the coastal city of northwest Greece. Uh, There's a New Testament character that uh, is only mentioned three times in the Bible by the name of Demas, D-E-M-A-S. And every time he's mentioned, he's mentioned by the Apostle Paul, and it's at the conclusion of one of his personal letters. He's mentioned in the closing statements of these three different letters. As we look at these mentions of this individual by the name of Demas, we see in his life a downward digression in his commitment to Jesus Christ, where he actually becomes what we would call an apostate. Now, the first time Demas is mentioned is actually in Paul's short letter to Philemon. As that book closes, we find these words. Look on the screen. Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So the first time Paul mentions this individual by the name of Demas, he lists him as a fellow worker. Now, here's something we need to know about a fellow worker of Paul. There was a particular vetting process you had to go through in order to be considered uh, qualified to be a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. We know from the book of Acts that Paul actually dismissed some individuals from his work because they didn't cut the mustard. And so here is Demas, who apparently did qualify, who had processed that vetting process and was a fellow worker. He was no doubt, at least on the outward appearance, a committed soldier in Christ's army. But then as you move forward, the next time Paul mentions Demas is at the end of the book of Colossians, and notice how he puts it there. In closing, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. <laughs> so first he's a a fellow worker of Paul, and then as he's riding to the Colossians, he says, by the way, Luke, your beloved physician, he's with me. Ah, Demas is here too. Now we see the full-scale desertion by Demas in the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. His last letter recorded in our Bible is the book of 2 Timothy. And at the close of that letter, Paul gets very personal with his son in the faith, Timothy. He knows My time of departure is near. My martyrdom for the faith is right around the corner. But still he appeals to Timothy, would you come to me before winter, and when you come, bring my coat, because it's going to get cold. But don't only bring bring my coat, also bring my books and my parchments, those copies of the Scripture that Paul no doubt wanted to immerse himself in in his parting days. But as he concludes this letter to Timothy, Notice what he says in verses 9 and 10 of that final chapter. He says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Here is one who was a fellow worker with Paul. 
Here is one who is on the road in the mission with Paul and his missionary journeys. But something had transpired. There was this downward digression in Demas's life where he became a deserter. Now, this would have been painful, no doubt, to Paul, but it would not have come as a complete shock to him. Here's why. Because many years earlier, he would have written to this church in Thessalonica, this second letter we're studying, where he talks about just such an occurrence, a departing from the faith, a leaving of the following of Jesus. This desertion, Paul warned, is going to take place at the end in alarming amounts. It's going to be a great desertion, a great rebellion. I've entitled this message, The Great Apostasy. Now, before we read our focal text, we're going to look at verses 3 through 12. I want to just remind you and, and tell those of you that may not have been here with this study, over the last couple of weeks, we've considered Paul's uh, response to some false teaching that was happening in this church. Namely, apparently someone had come into that church and had attributed a message to Paul to the effect that Jesus had, one, already come back and that you missed it. He'd already gathered together his people and you missed it. And so Paul's writing this letter to correct that errant thinking. And what Paul does is he gives two unmistakable signs, two proofs. You can know Christ has not yet returned if these two things have not yet happened. In fact, let's see if you can pick out what they are in verse 3. Let's begin reading the text. The Bible says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless one the rebellion comes first, and two, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, he corrects this false message by telling them Christ has not yet returned, the day of the Lord has not yet happened, and you know it's not happened because these two things must occur first, the revealing of the lawless one, the Antichrist, and this great rebellion as it's translated here in the ESV translation. Now, last week we took a deep dive on this individual known as the Antichrist. This week we're going to take a deep dive on this second sign he mentions, that of the rebellion or the apostasy. And there's four things, particularly from this passage and from parallel passages, I want us to consider about the great apostasy, the great rebellion or falling away. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to think about the reality of apostasy. The reality of apostasy, just as it was true in Paul's day that Demas uh, was an apostate, that he denied the faith, that he fell away, it's painful and it's heartbreaking, but it happens. And Paul says this is going to happen because the mystery of lawlessness 
is already at work. It's at work because the evil one leads astray those who are professing Christians, so much so that they reject God's rule. That's what lawlessness is. The law of God is his righteous rule, and those who are lawless are those who reject his rule in their lives. And this rejection of God, this rejection of his rule by professing Christians is a present reality in our world today. Now, I think it would be helpful for us to understand this reality of apostasy, so I want to kind of uh, talk about it in a couple of ways. First of all, consider its definition. What is the definition of apostasy? Now, it's a noun form used here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. It's translated in the ESV, rebellion. The Greek word there is apostasia, which is why I use the word apostasy. The New American Standard Bible translates it as apostasy. But what does this word apostasy actually mean? Here's Strong's definition of the verb form of this word. Used transitively, it signifies to cause to depart, to cause to revolt, Acts 5.37. Used intransitively, it means to stand off or aloof or depart from anyone. And that's why I think the ESV translation of rebellion is probably the best and most accurate translation. The King James Version says falling away, which it includes that, but it's more uh, worse, it's worse than that, much more than that. There's a departing away from the faith, but it also carries this idea of revolting against and rebelling against something. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus used this very word, apostasia, to describe the uprising of Hebrews in Jerusalem to rebel against Roman occupation. It was called an apostasia. It's a revolt. It's a rebellion. It's a uprising against something. Now, the question is this. Do we see this happening today in our day among professing Christians? Do we see professing, professing Christians not only falling away from the faith, as it were, but even rebelling against the faith? I would say, unfortunately, yes, we do. Every month or so, I hear about or I read about a report of a well-known pastor or Christian quote-unquote celebrity within the evangelical world who has, in fact, fallen away from the faith. And they've got a new word they've coined to describe this falling away, this apostasy. It's called deconstruction. People have deconstructed their faith. This was particularly grieving to me about a year ago when I learned that one of my favorite pastors, who's of what I would call my tribe of Christians, deconstructed his faith. I had all of his books. I'd gone to see him speak at conferences. I downloaded his sermons from the megachurch he pastored. But not only did he fall away from the faith, not only did he deconstruct the faith and say, I'm no longer a Christian, but he heartily tries to get other people to do it as well. In fact, just a couple of months ago, I noticed that he was offering his services for a fee, of course, to help you deconstruct your faith. You could have five lessons online with him for the low, low price of $275 to learn how to deconstruct your Christian faith. You know, it's one thing to say, I don't believe anymore. It's altogether another thing to try to get as many people to not believe with you and make money off of them. This is apostasy. This is a rebellion. But Paul predicted as much. In fact, notice how he used the verb form of apostasy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says this, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will apostatize, some will depart from the faith 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is the definition of apostasy. It's a departing from the faith, an act of opposition, a rebellion against the truth. But as we think about this concept of apostasy, I also want us to consider not only the definition, but number two, it's delineation. What do I mean by that? How do we delineate between somebody who may be an apostate and somebody who we might call or categorize as a backslider? We use that word sometimes, a backslider. How do we delineate between the two? Somebody that you may know, somebody may have come to your mind, even as we've been talking about this, that has somewhat denied the faith, is no longer pursuing Jesus Christ. Is this person an apostate or a a backslider? Now, the, the simple fact of the matter is, we can't know about somebody else. We can really only know about ourselves. But it raises this question. Is it possible for somebody who is genuinely converted, somebody who is a genuine follower of Christ, is it possible for that person to fall away from the faith? And the answer is categorically no. It is not possible. Here's why. The Bible teaches clearly that in order to possess a true and saving faith, it is only enabled by the grace of God. And God does not lose any that he has saved. In fact, he said this through Jesus in John chapter 10. Notice what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Bible teaches that all true believers will persevere in the end. Now we can identify the delineation between an apostate and a backslider if we consider two of Jesus' disciples, Judas and Peter. On that fateful Thursday evening, they both betrayed the Lord. On that fateful Thursday evening before Christ was crucified, they both denied Jesus. Well, how did they respond when confronted by Jesus? That Judas was such a good actor, none of the other disciples even considered that he may have been the betrayer that was predicted. But when he was called out, did he repent? No, he hardened his heart in his unbelief. Peter, on the other hand, when he was called out by Jesus, and Jesus just called him out with a look, what did he do? He went out and wept bitterly. That's the difference between an apostate and a backslider. John describes the why behind apostasy that occurs even in Christ's church. Notice what John said in his first epistle, chapter 2. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. The reason professing Christians, quote-unquote, deconstruct their faith and depart from Christ's church is because they were never truly Christians to begin with. And so it may not give us much comfort when we consider high-profile pastors fall away. We consider celebrity Christian music artists deconstructing their faith. You may be asking this question, well, how do I know if I'm a true Christian? How do I know if I may not be of one, one of those who later deconstructs, who later abandons the faith? Well, the Apostle John actually addresses this question in this first epistle, 1 John. In fact, he says he wrote the letter of 1 John so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so John gives us a series of 
tests in 1 John. You see on your outline there, if you have it open, there are three tests I want us to consider from the Apostle John from his epistle. The first one is this. This test of genuine faith is a doctrinal test. In other words, what do you believe? What do you believe? John said in 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is a doctrinal test about your belief. Do you believe, present tense, in Jesus? Listen, there may be people who listen to Christian radio, who wear Christian t-shirts, who have Christian bumper stickers, who go to Christian concerts, who attend a Christian church, but they don't pass the doctrinal test. They don't believe the true gospel. There's not much to, a, uh, to consider about them except the fact that they are not truly saved. Do you believe doctrinally that Jesus is the promised Messiah of God? Here's the second test John gives in verse 5b, a love test. Who do you love? John continues, and everyone who loves the Father, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Those who have been born of him are Christians. This is the love test. You look around this room. There's not a lot of us who are particularly attracted to each other because of other means or other reasons. I mean, me and my son-in-law, Claire, about the only Gator fans in here. I wouldn't be with you people on a Sunday morning after we got beat so bad yesterday by Georgia. But guess what? I'm here. Because what brings us together is not which SEC team we pull for. What brings us together is that we've been born of God. And so we are attracted to other family members. If you have no desire to be with the church, if you have no desire to be in fellowship with other Christians, you might not be saved. Those who have genuinely been born of God love whoever the Father loves, and they've been born of Him. Here's the third test John gives, and that's a moral test. A moral test. How do you live? How do you live? 1 John 2, 5 and 6 says this, but whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. A true Christian, listen, seeks to live the way Jesus lived. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? Absolutely not. But we pursue godliness. We seek holiness. We desire to walk in righteousness. You may say, you know, I want to be holy, pastor, but I'm having such a difficult time doing it. Listen. Unbelievers don't think that way. Unbelievers don't feel that way. I want to be holy. Just your desire for holiness indicates the Spirit, Spirit's work in your life. This is the opposite of lawlessness. Lawlessness says, I don't want God's rule. Holiness says, I want God's rule over me. And again, at the end of the day, we can't look at others and make a determination about their faith. We must look within Am I genuinely a believer in Jesus Christ? And as heartbreaking as apostasy is, and as heartbreaking as it must have been for Paul when Demas deserted him, Paul warns us, in the future there will be this second thing. Number two, the rise of apostasy. The rise of apostasy. He says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Just as we know, and we looked at last week, there are antichrist figures we can point to throughout the annals of church history. Throughout history, there have been these antichrist figures. There is coming one final individual antichrist who is the lawless one. In the same way, we can look throughout church history and see seasons and influences of apostates and apostate churches even. But there is coming one final great 
rebellion. And in fact, I mentioned last week that this concept of the Antichrist and the Great Rebellion, they're really interwoven together. The Antichrist comes on the scene the same time as this rebellion. In fact, we see their activity is linked together in verses 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception, for those who are perishing. That's the apostates. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You may remember I pointed out the specific word Paul used to describe the coming of Jesus Christ. It's in verse 1. Concerning the coming, that's the word parousia. Interestingly, Paul uses that exact same word, parousia, to describe the coming of Antichrist. So God ordained the coming of his Christ. Satan is scheming the coming, the parousia, of the false Christ, of the Antichrist, the counterfeit Christ. And he says there, people will be led astray because of all power, false signs, and wonders. These three terms, power, false signs, and wonders, these three terms were used to, dis- to validate and authenticate Jesus' ministry. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter delivers the first sermon of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost, he says that Jesus performed with power, signs, and wonders. And Paul takes those three words and says, these things will also accompany the false Christ, the Antichrist. This counterfeit Christ will be energized by Satan to perform these things that will have no natural explanation. They will break the laws of nature, and so they will become very impressive and make a strong impression on many people so as to lead them astray in the last days. This is how Satan works, right? Throughout human history, this is how Satan has worked. And this is why John warned Christians 2,000 years ago in 1 John 4, 1 with these words. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hear me clearly. Just because somebody has a big platform, just because somebody has a YouTube channel with thousands or maybe even millions of followers doesn't mean they're a legitimate voice for Christ and for his church. Even over the last several years, there has been an incredible increase and uptick of self-ascribed Christian prophets who make predictions uh, about things like politics, sports, the weather, elections. In fact, I've had some of these so-called prophets and prophecies forwarded to me in my email. Hey, pastor, would you watch this prophecy from this modern-day prophet and tell me your assessment? Some of these prophets have actually made predictions that have come to pass, that have been fulfilled. Listen to me. There is more than one power at work in the world. There are false powers and deceptive spirits. The mere fact that there are wonders doesn't validate the message. In fact, Jesus even gave this warning in his Olivet Discourse when he's talking about the end times. Paul, excuse me, Jesus says this, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. And in our focal passage, Paul emphasizes how it's this deception that's going to be at an all-time high at the end that will lead many, many astray from the faith. Many will apostatize 
because of this. Now, we may wonder, how could people be so gullible? How could people be so gullible to believe these false prophets and these false Christ? Again, I told you, over the last couple of years, there's been a significant uptick in these self-ascribed prophets, and that's mainly been in charismatic corners of evangelicalism. But we've also seen this occur within corners of Catholicism in our day. When I was in New York City a couple weeks ago, I went to what's known as Flushing Meadows, which is where the U.S. Tennis Open is played. It's also Corona Park, where the World Fair was in 1966. It's a massive park there in the city, bigger actually even than Central Park. And I went there so that I could, with another fellow from New York, he's actually from North Carolina, he's in New York, the two of us were going along trying to engage people in gospel conversation. As I went up to one individual, an older gentleman, and I began to talk to him, and I discovered he was Jewish. In the course of our conversation, he said, hey, you might like to come back here to Corona Park on Sunday. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, several years ago, there's a Roman Catholic woman who saw an apparition of the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus. And so there is this shrine that's been constructed in Corona Park, and he even pointed over to me, he said, you, you can go right over there on Sunday. I'm like, I'm not going to be here Sunday. Sorry, thanks for the invitation. Um, so it, what happens? He says, on Sundays, hundreds of Catholics come, and they converge on this place as pilgrims where supposedly this apparition occurred. Of course, we've heard of these kinds of stories quite a bit in our day, whether it's the image of the Virgin Mary on the sixth-floor window of an office building seen in the waves of the glass there, or the burn marks on a tortilla that a lady has had when she flipped it on the frying pan and she puts it in a glass enclosure and hundreds of thousands of people come and pay homage to the holy tortilla, right? These are happening today. How could people be so gullible? Jesus says that false signs and wonders would lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, it's not possible for the elect to be led astray, but they're going to be so convincing that even the elect could be potentially led astray. This indicates there will be many, listen, there will be many who are engaged in Christian activity, who attend Christian churches, that when the great rebellion occurs, when the apostasy takes place, they will be led astray. Now, in our focal text, Paul tells us the main reason this is going to happen at the end of verse 10, look at it, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There is this great apostasy because at the end of the day, though they may have been a lot of religious activity with these individuals, they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So we've seen the reality of apostasy, the rise of apostasy. Third, I want us to consider this, the restrainer of apostasy. The restrainer of apostasy. Twice in this passage, there is a reference to something or someone which restrains the coming of Antichrist and the coming of this rebellion, this apostasy. But then that restraint is lifted, that restrainer is removed, and makes way for these two signs that precede the Lord's coming. Look again at verse 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, the natural question we ask students, well, who is, in the world is this? Who is this restrainer? Or what is this restrainer? I would point out a couple things. If you notice there in verse 6 and 7, uh, there's two different pronouns in the Greek that come out in the English translation. In verse 6, we see there the word what, that's a neuter pronoun. What is restraining him? And in the Greek, in verse 7, 
there's a masculine pronoun that's translated who now restrains it. And so here's what we understand about these. First of all, you notice that the neuter pronoun is connected to the Antichrist, the person. And you know what, neuter pronoun, is restraining him, person of the Antichrist. Verse 7, now we know who restrains it. So the who is connected to the apostasy. So, if that's thoroughly confusing, <laughs> what is this about? Well, what this tells us is that the identity of this restrainer, whoever, whatever it may be, has both an impersonal and a personal reality. Now, before I dive into this just for a few moments, I want us to know that we need to approach this question, who this restrainer is, with a bit of humility. For one, Paul references uh, his former conversation and teaching when he was in Thessalonica there, and he says, you know now what is restraining him. And I'm like, no, Paul, we don't know. Would you tell us? But he doesn't tell us in the text. He just reminds them of how he told them who it was. But he, we don't have the privy of that conversation. So as we approach this, we need to approach it with a couple of, uh, with some uh, humility. We need to be humble. Now, there's been as many as seven uh, theories from scholars and theologians as to exactly what is Paul re referring to here with this restrainer or the power of restraint that's happening here. And I want to just mention three of them. The first one is this. Uh, the first potential solution is the Roman Empire. That Paul's referring to the Roman Empire. Here's why. We know that the Antichrist is referred to as the lawless one. The apostasy is known as lawlessness, and the Roman Empire was the law. And so either it's referring to the Roman Empire specifically, and it's uh, the Roman law that it had forward, or it's referring to civil government in general throughout history. And so this, when government is removed or when the Roman Empire is removed, that's the restrainer that's keeping back the Antichrist and the apostasy. I don't particularly think this is the answer because, one, if it's referring to the Roman Empire, it was gone about 1,500 years ago. Secondly, if it's referring to civil government generally, this doesn't coincide with many of the inferences that the Antichrist will actually utilize the vehicle of civil government for his rise to authority and to power. The second option that I would present is the option that the restrainer is actually the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, and specifically the indwelling Holy Spirit within Christ's church. And this view suggests that when the church is removed out of the way from the earth, the Holy Spirit who indwells the church is going to be gone, and that's going to open the way for the Antichrist and for this great rebellion and the great apostasy. I also think this is unlikely. Don't throw tomatoes. I think this is unlikely for a couple of reasons as well. First of all, it treats the church as if we are the container of the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit is God, and as God, he is omnipresent. Psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So I don't believe the Holy Spirit is bottled up in the church, and if the church is gone, then all of a sudden uh, that removes the Holy Spirit and his activity. Another reason I think this solution is unlikely, because the focus of the oppression of the Antichrist is against the church. The focus of this rebellion and this apostasy is away from the true church. So it doesn't make logical sense that the church is gone and then the Antichrist shows up. Well, who's his persecution against? It doesn't make sense that the church is gone and then there's this great falling away. Well, where are they falling away from? The true church is gone. So this one doesn't make sense to me. So here's a third option I'll present to you. Again, we, we say this in humility. Don't uh, write me nasty emails when we get done, all right? 
The third option is this. Number three, I believe it, this view is uh, the worldwide preaching of the gospel empowered by God. The preached gospel empowered by God. Now, this section in 2 Thessalonians is actually Paul reiterating much of what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And notice what Matthew records in chapter 24. Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so this view takes into account the impersonal pronoun and also the personal pronoun. That the restrainer is in fact God himself who controls the coming of the man of lawlessness by his own purposes in keeping with his sovereign timeline. Things are not going to conclude until God says they're going to conclude. And he decides and determines when the end of this age is going to be. And there's coming a time when the end gathering of God's people into Christ's church is over. It's done. The preaching of the gospel is concluded, and then, Jesus says, the end will come. Now, regardless of what the answer is for this mysterious restrainer, the bottom line is this. Don't miss this. God is in control. God is in charge, and things will be accomplished according to his timetable. But now, as we move towards the conclusion of this message, here's the fourth and final thing about the great apostasy. Number four, I want us to consider the ruin of apostasy. The ruin of apostasy. As I mentioned last week, there is not going to be this dualistic battle between heaven and earth or between God and Satan, between the Antichrist and the true Christ. No, there's no contest. God is all-powerful. There is not arrayed against one another these equal yet opposite forces. Now, within this reality, there is a feature about the sovereignty of God in all things that can be mysterious and sometimes even confusing. I want you to look at this next slide. I spent quite some time crafting this sentence to try to encapsulate God's sovereignty in all things, particularly as it works in the end. The working out of God's purposes are such that even those who exercise their freedom to do evil, in the end, they will ultimately discover that their actions have fulfilled God's eternal will and the accomplishment of God's divine plan. Does that make sense? Even sinners in their sin, thinking they're acting in their own sinfulness according to the own dictates of their own heart, they're going to come out to discover this was part of God's design anyway to accomplish his purposes, part of his divine plan. We see this throughout the Bible. Think of Pharaoh and Egypt and the people of Israel and their enslavement. Over and over again, Moses, the deliverer, comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And what does God do to Pharaoh? He hardens his heart. And Pharaoh says, no, you can't go. No, you can't go. And the plagues begin to come until finally he lets them go. Why did God allow Pharaoh and harden his heart so that he would reject the purposes of God so that God's mighty power of salvation would be seen even in him? And friends, there's coming a day when evil is going to reign in this world in a way we cannot even conceive of. And God in his sovereignty is going to lift his restraint and allow the world to go to hell in a handbasket. Why is he going to do it? Because he's going to consummate all things in the salvation of his church for his glory alone. In fact, we see this in verses 11 and 12. Look what it says there. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, 
in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. For those who are among the great throng of apostates who reject the gospel, they are being handed over by God to their own wicked hearts, their own wicked desires. They have chosen to reject the truth. They have chosen to love unrighteousness and evil. Paul says here they actually take pleasure in unrighteousness. And this is the judgment. This is the ruin of apostasy. Even as we've seen before in Romans chapter 1, as this sin occurs in our world, God hands them over to their depraved way of thinking. They get even worse in their sin. God hands them over to their own minds and their own thinking. In fact, I would say that even the so-called intellectual arguments of the atheist and the skeptic of our day that they put forward to deny the existence of God, at the end of the day, those arguments are not predicated on their intellect, but on the fact that they don't want to be accountable to God. That's why they develop the arguments in the first place, and they present them. Case in point, the famed intellectual atheist of the 20th century from England, Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley uh, just ferociously opposed Christ, his church, the existence of God. And in his famed autobiography, he actually describes why he had this opposition to the church and to Christianity. It actually is not for intellectual reasons. It was for sensual reasons. I quote, he says, For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Aldous Huxley was basically paraphrasing 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned, watch this, who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And friends, it stands to reason then if the apostates are those who reject God's truth and take pleasure in unrighteousness, don't miss this, true Christians are those who are lovers of the truth and pursue righteousness. I want to close today with a very important question. Look at this next slide. Where are you? Where are you? Are you a lover of truth? Are you a pursuer of holiness and righteousness? How did you do on John's test of genuineness? Let's review the test. The doctrinal test. What do you believe? Do you believe the truth about God? Do you believe the truth about who you are by nature in relationship to God? That you're accountable to him as your creator, but yet because of your sin, you are under judgment and a curse? What do you believe? It's a doctrinal test. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe Jesus is the one and only Son of God sent from heaven 
who took on human flesh, who was tempted in every way you've tempted, every thought, every deed, every action, but yet he never sinned. And therefore he was not guilty of the punishment of death, but he took in your place death, even death on a cross, that he might bear in your place the punishment for sin. Do you believe that after being killed on that cross and buried in a tomb, that on the third day he was resurrected from the dead? This is a doctrinal test. Do you believe? There's also the love test. Who do you love? Are you attracted to other Christians? Are you inclined to walk together in Christian fellowship with people who love Jesus? The moral test. How do you live? Do you have a desire to walk in righteousness? Do you have a longing to be holy as Christ is holy? Walking in obedience to Christ's commands. Important question this morning. Where are you? My challenge for you today is that you not let your head hit the pillow tonight without answering this question. That you know for certain that you are one of Christ's own. That you have believed the truth and surrendered and submitted to him and his call of righteousness. Today is the day of salvation. It doesn't matter your church attendance. It doesn't matter your precepts on your radio station. What matters is, have you surrendered to Christ? Have you believed his gospel? And that leads to my last thought. True saving faith is seen in the living fruit it bears. Bible belief, moral change, and brotherly love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.